Welcome to the Sport in History podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week, we're continuing the series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR with Dr. Hugh Richards. Hi, Hugh. Hi. Uh, Hugh is an associate lecturer at the London College of Communication. As well as being a respected historian of sports, he is a freelance writer and journalist who has worked for, among others, many others, uh, the BBC, the Financial Times and the International Herald Tribune. But today he's here as a rugby historian and he's written a number of authoritative works on the history of rugby, including A Game for Hooligans, The History of Rugby and The Red and the White, an account of the rivalry between Wales and England through over a century of rugby. rugby. Hugh, uh, thanks for coming in today to talk to me. The, the paper you gave for us at the IHR, uh, titled The Bounce of the Century, was about the match between Wales and New Zealand in 1953. Can you tell us some more about the significance of that game? Yes, well, the, the phrase The Bounce of the Century was the um, taken, it was actually the original title of my book, Dragons and All Blacks, uh, which to some degree I cannibalised for the paper as one does. Um, <laughs> And it was the phrase that the New Zealand journalist Terry McLean used for the situation. The last five minutes with the scores level, Clem Thomas playing for Wales kicked across from the left-hand side of the field to the right, and the ball effectively stood up between the two fastest men of the field on the field. Ken Jones, the Welsh wing, who was all, who was actually an Olympic medalist, and Ron Jardin of New Zealand. And the, the bounce off question, obviously. Essentially the point is, whichever one of them got to the ball was almost certainly going to score. Ken Jones gets the ball, scores, Wales win. This is 1953 and of course the, the point, as we are reminded every time we play New Zealand since, it is the last time Wales won. It's extraordinary really. Yeah, and the, the idea originally came, funny enough, from a cricket book, uh, David Kiniston, who wrote a marvellous book called WG's Birthday Party. Mm about the 1898 Gentleman Players game and used it to illustrate how quick it was the end of the 19th century for the players' lives, but also built it around a bit of a match report. And I interviewed David about this and among a number of other things actually in the early 90s, so it was some time before the idea came to fruition. And we discussed whether there was a rugby match you could do this for. Uh, David, quite reasonably being English, suggested Obolensky's match. Yeah. And I say and I said, well, it's a bit too late now, which is nineteen ninety one. So <clears throat> fifty odd years ago. But hmm, Wales, New Zealand, nineteen fifty three, that's something. Um, I didn't do anything about it for years, during which time Clem Thomas, whom I knew very well, died. But the idea came back in about sort of two thousand and one, two thousand and two, as being with the with the fiftieth anniversary approaching. Yeah. And uh the paper that you gave, you described how it was almost, it was also a landmark in broadcasting history. Well, that's right, it was shown on television. It's a very, very early televised match. Yeah. We, do, we have fragments rather than a full uh, record of it, just as with, with the, there's a, there's a, it was broadcast on the radio, and it probably tells you something that in Britain the National Sound Archives had fragments, which are mostly around the major moments, the um, scores, the end of the match. Yeah. Uh, the New Zealand National Sound Archives in Christchurch has the whole thing and I'm hoping that the originals, which were on colossal discs, survived the earthquake, but even if not, I'm fairly confident that they digitised it all before, well before then. 
and 53 was such a significant year for broadcasting history because of course it was the year of the coronation wasn't it and so lots of people bought tv sets for the coronation well, i think that's it it's the, it's, the, it's the point at which television acquires a certain sort of critical mass and of course it's very interesting for the new zealanders have not yet got it yeah. so one of the thing and what i started off you know the starting point was the whale's whim um i interviewed um 12 New Zealanders, 10 of whom were played in the game, mm. Terry McLean and nine of the surviving 10 Welshmen. Rather frustratingly, the one I couldn't get to was, so apologies, eight of the surviving 10 Welshmen. I couldn't, I couldn't at that stage get to Ken Jones, who was already too ill. Um, and I realised, of course, that the really good story wasn't the Welshmen who had, sta- who had stayed at home and had slept in their own beds, or at least in the Welsh bed, uh, the night after it was the New Zealanders who had left home in a time when people just didn't leave home and travel around the world. One or two of them, of the older players, had done military service, so had travelled a yeah. bit. But this is long before the age when New Zealanders have become the great travellers of the world. And yeah, for several of these people, it's, for instance, I remember Brian Fitzpatrick, the, uh, uh, Sean's father, saying it was still the longest journey he'd ever had. I don't think he'd ever gone back to Britain. I think it's a neglected aspect, actually, of those early tours, the kind of the emotional experience of touring. And it's something that, you know, emotional history of the emotion has become very popular in kind of other areas of, of history, well, military history in particular. Yeah. Well, I think it's something you see, for instance, in, that, in, in, in all the reunions. Yeah. You know, the extent to which touring teams continue to have, you know, 50, yeah, obviously, you get to an age where it becomes impossible, but certainly 40 yeah, anniversaries, 40 years, 50 years. This team had a 50th anniversary uh, reunion in 2003, and one of the benefits of the slight delay was I was actually able to have a picture of the survivors in the book. Not, you know, not everybody was there. And funnily enough, I was looking at the picture, and the people I didn't get to interview, which who were most of the people who hadn't played at Cardiff, were actually in the back row. The people I'd interviewed were in the front two rows, yes. which I think was utterly fortuitous. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, this, and of course, this is something that has now largely gone. Yeah, the, the the Lions tours, which also in their own way are fairly vestigial, and are going to get more vestigial when they go down to eight games rather than ten. Um, are about the last survivor of the classical rugby tour. Yeah, yeah. Um, the paper uh, was part of research for the book that you mentioned, uh, Dragons and All Blacks. So. Was that, that took the story of Wales v New Zealand from its inception back in the sort of 19th, 20th century? That was the idea. There's yeah. a very strong case in many cases, you know, the starting point isn't... The Welsh teams played, they played the Maori teams of 1888. Mm. But there's a very strong case. 1905 is a... The match in 1905 is a remarkable moment. Yeah. I think Can you expand on the 1905 well, match? Because well, I've written about it myself yeah, in a minor way. But well, I think it's not just in rugby. It's in sporting history because you have two nations undergoing enormous change. Um, yeah, New Zealand, after all, is a very new nation. Uh, it's only a few years earlier voted not to become part of Australia. Uh, it still essentially regards itself as an offshore part of Britain. But then, so the All Blacks are a very important part of it. But also for Wales, Wales has changed colossally in the second half of the 19th century. Now there's a new Wales which is very different to, which is heavily, heavily popular by people who come in from the outside. Wales is different from the other Celtic nations. It's defined largely by immigration rather than emigration. Mm. And it's one of the interesting things, of course, that in 1905 you actually have two of the more dynamic nations on earth. 
Uh, we think of Wales because of the last century in terms of decline. But this is when Wales is growing very fast, it's changing. Um, and there's certainly, you know, there's a very strong argument. This is a point at which a, a modern Wales takes on a form of identity. It finds something unify around. Um, Welsh, you know, Welsh identity, as if you've seen Martin John's television series or read his book, it shows very well. You know, Welsh, Welsh national identity is hugely contested. Mm. Uh, it lacks most of the conventional signifiers. Wales in 1905 doesn't officially have a flag, it doesn't have a capital city. It's administratively part of England. A successful rugby team gives Wales something that um, people can support and identify with. It's before football has become popular in Wales, so rugby you know, be becomes a unifying point. Yeah. But similarly for New Zealand. And I think the other thing about the relationship between the two, uh, Wales and New Zealand don't have a huge amount to do with each other off the rugby field. Um, there are, it's been calculated there may be one or two percent of New Zealand population are, are of Welsh descent, but that's a small amount compared to the English, the Irish and the Scots. Welsh, Welsh emigrants tend yeah. to go to other areas of the world, aren't they associated right. with mining particularly? That's very often, yeah. yeah. But, but I think the deal is, if you're an English or a Scottish New Zealander, or an Irishman, which is most of them, an Englishman or a Scotland, well, yeah, one of the other, you know, is the bloke who goes to, is, you know, is the bloke who meets at work, whose kids go to a different school, who drinks in a different place, and you, and you argue about politics. The Welsh are this strange, mythical people, the other side of the world, who love rugby as much as you do. It's, it's, a, it's actually it's a virtual relationship in many ways. And the, to, to narrow down to the match itself, it was an extraordinary match, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it is uh, an extraordinary game in which the All Blacks, who have who were right at the end of their tour, uh, they've played about, I think it's like 25 or 26 games unbeaten, have gone through England, much as the Vikings did in the 19th century. <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. Um, <laughs> come to Wales and they finally run into opponents. Two things, one thing has to be honest, I think New Zealand by that stage are tired, but they come up against opponents who are as tough and as smart as they are and in particular Wales are willing to adopt the New Zealand formation. That was one of the very controversial aspects of, right. the, of the New Zealand team, wasn't That's it? That's right, is the, seven, is the, se is the, se the seven-man scrum and the extra, the extra halfback. Yeah. Wales adopt that and use them as a dummy in a planned move which leads to the winning try, which is devised by devised by Dickie Owen, the scrum half. Wales practice before the game, which is almost unheard of. They sing Henry Lavanadai, it's the beginning of the rise of Henry Lavanadai, being regarded as, as the Welsh national anthem, though it doesn't acquire official status until the 60s. It's, it's hugely important, I think, in terms of um, Welsh identity. For New Zealand, of course, you have the, you have the myth of the Dean's try. Mm. I'll use the word myth. <laughs> Obviously, the, there is no way of, there is no way of knowing. It's rugby's equivalent of Jeff Hurst's goal in the '66 um, FA Cup final, or it could, of course, or what we might or what, what might one day be seen as you know, the Stokes LBW. Yes. <laughs> at um, Headingley, uh, in which New Zealand get the affirmation of this. Um, yeah, they lost, but they were a long way from home, and they could have won. And they've, and there was a case that they were robbed. Um, Deans dies three years later, um, so there's a whole range of sort of pathos attached to it. Gallagher, the captain, dies in the First World yes. War. So there's a whole range of forces that put this in. Yeah, 
enmeshed this in New Zealand history. What was very striking was that every single member of the New Zealand team had grown up on the legend of the Dean's try. Of the Welsh team, Cliff Morgan had, and to a lesser extent, Gareth Griffiths, the centre. But otherwise, the, you know, the Welsh background in sporting terms is much more variegated, probably more than we played football than soccer yeah. as children. And there wasn't this sort of myth around the game. But it and is, they, they might define themselves more against the English than against the New Zealanders. Many, New Zealanders. I think they understand New Zealand being very, very as being very important. Because of course, at this stage, it's only the, it's only the fourth time they've met. Yeah. And that's because one of the things these games are incredibly rare in those days. You get touring teams every ten years. And as Bill Clark, one of the um, one of the New Zealand players, said to me, it was one of the, yeah, when you're waiting for selection, you know, you you knew how many people had been unlucky, and you knew it wasn't. You know, if you missed out this time. It wasn't until 1963. Yeah. Now, as it happens, Ian Clark won the prop four, which did come back in 63, but he was the first ever New Zealand player to do two tours. So it was very much a one, it was very much a one-off thing. And how do you see um, rugby union, uh, or rugby more generally, um, because lots of Welsh players did play league as well, didn't they? But how do you see this as contributing to uh, an enduring sense of Welsh identity during that in industrial decline that you talked about earlier on? Well, I think it's one, if, well, I think it's one of those things where um, it's something Wales are good at. Mm. There, are bad, yeah, there are bad periods of the 20s. It's something which, it's something which gives Wales a... And it's something you can establish as we should, Wales should be respected for. Why, one of the interesting things about the Wales-England game is, is how evenly contested it's been over the years. There have been long periods of domination by both sides, but over history it's been it's been remarkably close. And it's something it's something you know, it's one of the things small nations need in relation to the larger ones next door. Um, need a source of respect, and rugby does that. And do you think that that's also tied to a particular idea of Welsh masculinity and this kind of physicality that uh, Welsh working class men I, would have? Yeah, I think, it, although it's, it's always interesting that the Welsh, you know, Welsh, rugby, Welsh rugby is diverse by the sounds of the rugby union, mm. uh, ra rather than more of our general. It, it's, it's still, Welsh rugby union is probably still more middle class than the population as a whole. Four, four of the forwards of that team in 1953 were privately educated. Mm. So it, it's possible to overstate that, but I think certainly the extent to which in Wales it's a game that spreads across classes and in in it doesn't in, you know, in England outside one or two places like Gloucester, in Scotland outside the borders, in Ireland outside Limerick. I think that's something that gave it... it gave the Welsh team a certain appeal to people like me, yeah. I don't sound like it, who grew up in the north. Um, yeah, I think there's no... I think there's a, there's always there's always a sort of there's always a touch of class war, yeah. particularly when it comes to play, particularly when it comes to playing England. Mm. So this year it's um, it's a World Cup year. World Cup is coming up in Japan uh, very soon. Um, England and Wales have just played a couple of uh, internationals against each other. But weren't you there for the very first World Cup in 1987? I was for, for a whole range of newspapers which uh, had not existed much before, did not exist much after. It was a very lucky piece of timing. I think I wrote for the news on Sunday. Um, Today Sports Extra and the London Daily Post. Right, I didn't know about um, any of those. No, well, <laughs> they, you, if you weren't around at the time or you weren't particularly into newspaper history, you probably wouldn't do. Yeah. Uh, but they obviously served a very useful purpose as far as I was concerned. And I was at the first game. 
which was the All Blacks against Italy, played in midweek at Eden Park. There were probably only about 18 to 20,000 there. Yeah. Um, and of course, the home unions have been rather opposed to the World Cup. It's something that had taken a long time coming. I think we knew that the world would never be quite the same again. But you're never quite sure. Yeah, it could have it could have been a remarkable one-off, and that was it. I think by the end we had a fairly clear idea um, that rugby had changed forever. Because of course it's one of the things that I found writing one of my other books, um, again for hooligans. And I started off with a book that was basically going to be this thing followed by the other history of rugby union. And I discovered after a while that what I'd actually got a book about, I got was a book about amateurism. Yeah. Um, and the way in which amateurism became not just a set of rules, but an ideology for rugby union. Yeah. And certainly throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, you read the international board minutes and you find the home unions are very opposed to almost anything which might expand the game. Australia is often by itself wanting to expand um, and the four home unions are very conservative. You know, they don't, for instance, they don't like, like the idea at all of multinational tournaments, they're always blocking any interest and the idea of getting anything into the Olympic Games, for instance. And I think the reason is they think that a World Cup is a step on the road towards rugby union becoming professionalism, professional. Now, at this range, now, depends of course whether you think they were right to want to value amateurism above all else. Yeah. I personally don't think they do, but you can't actually argue with their logic. No. I think there's very little doubt that yeah, ultimately the you know, World Cup was a vital stepping stone towards rugby going uh, before rugby accepting it. I'm reluctant to refer to the later stage of the rugby union as amateur. Yeah. If you watched both games, what's striking in a sense is the similarity between the two games in that neither of them provided many people with a living both of them provided undoubtedly paid people money, which is in the meaning of the rules. You're talking about the two codes, Rugby League and Rugby yes, Union. Rugby, yeah. Rugby, rugby League, um, you've actually only got two full-time professional clubs, Leeds and Wigan, um, in English Rugby League before 1995. It's a, sort of it's a sort of cottage capitalism. And you've got players, and there are undoubtedly Rugby Union players who are having to make the commitments of full-time sportsmen and rugby union reaches the stage that of course American sport has now done, American, American college sport, where pretty much everybody's being paid but the players. Yeah. And of course that becomes sort of the final sticking point. When you reach the point that the only people who aren't being paid are the players, that's the point at which the whole thing has become ridiculous. Yeah, and, and when you wrote about the, that era of professionalisation, how did you, um, as a historian I mean, how did you manage to separate your personal experience as a journalist and sort of talking to players at the mm. time from writing a history from a distance, if well, you I like. Think, well, I think obviously the two feed into each other, yeah. inevitably, because what you remember, what you saw, what you read at the time, your own cuttings are a factor. What I did do, for instance, for a game for hooligans, um, was do things like read IRB minutes, um, look at things like Rugby World magazine, which is quite useful because it gave... There's a point about any 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 uh, contemporary publication is really taking you back into that world. It's a snapshot. But you know what happened next. The person who's writing then doesn't. It, yeah. it takes you 
it's one of the, you know, it's one of the reasons I think I love old newspapers. They're fascinating because they they take you back they take you back into that into another world and that, as it was as it was on the day they were published. Yeah. So I you know, certainly the chat I, you know, the you know, again for hooligans is very large in research and secondary sources. Yeah. But I did make use say of uh, IRB minutes uh, and of um, and rugby world and my own memories. So there's a bit, there's a bit of a mix in there. Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not primary sources in the way, for instance, that Tony Collins's Overworld is. They, yeah. they, they're, dif they're different books. Yeah, but it's one of those things. It's one of those times that um, I think, obviously, people have written about professionalisation as historians uh, since mm -hmm. then. Um, but I still think there's a kind of a. I feel there's a there's more work to be done on the process. Well, I think almost, well, one thing that occurs to me is the whole question of how much money was there in rugby union before 1995. When I interviewed Robert Jones, the Wales player, I co-wrote Robert's autobiography in mm. the late 90s. Robert talked a bit about the sort of money he was on at Swansea. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, it was the sort of, it was certainly, it was decent beer money. Yeah. It made, it would have made those players professionals under the meaning of the rules at the time. It wasn't. They weren't professionals in the sense that anybody was making a, a real living from it. Yeah, it was supplementing their yeah, existing. It's supplementing. Income. You know, so you know, so most what, what rugby most rugby union players after that time have jobs. An awful lot of them are jobs which are provided by club sponsors, but very you know, very few of them are a complete fiction. Perhaps there's an oral history PhD out there for somebody. Maybe, um, maybe there is somebody. Kind of thing, but I think but it's, it struck me at the time when I interviewed Robert about this that. Yeah, before long we would know a lot more, and it's rather odd that nobody does seem to have gone talk to players. And after all, you know, it's now twenty. You know, we're now twenty years on. Um, There's very little at stake. Yeah, those nobody, people started to yeah, talk about. What nobody's going. Nobody's going to get banned nowadays. No. Um, what they did know at the time was that, was, you know, was that if you were found out breaking the rules, there was potentially very serious punishments. So I don't think. I don't think anybody blamed players who told less than the whole truth at the time. Mm. Yeah, well, I, partly because I have a, um, a connection to that period course, myself, yes. because uh, listeners might know that my uncle uh, purchased a Richmond Rugby mm. Club. It was quite a, wasn't a, wasn't an entirely happy experience for him, I don't think. But I've often tried to persuade him to kind of give an account of his experience of what happened and he's still quite um, reticent about the, about the whole affair. Yes, it would be, in his case it certainly be worth since getting his side of the story because plen plenty of other people have had their say. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but of course that's, sli that's slightly past it. I think it would be very interesting to get a, you know, get a real sense of the comparison with the lives of the professional union and the professional rugby league player in the last 10 years of, well, what I've in rugby union would term pre-professionalism rather than amateurism. I suspect we'd find that there's not a big difference between them. Yeah, and sort of thinking about the, the, the relationship between the two different codes, between rugby league and rugby union. Um, when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. there was a lot of talk about the two codes actually coming together, and there was yeah. a famous game between Bath and St Helens, I think it was. Bath and Wigan. They played, Bath and Wigan, sorry. They played yeah. home and away. Yeah. I best put about that was in... Yeah, we get more of the big team, that, they, at that time. Although, you could well say, well, you know, the reasons are separate, it's no longer there. But you know, you'd had a single code for 
but if you regard it, and obviously 1871 as your, as your starting date, mm. and obviously that, you know, that's something you can debate you, if you want to take it back to the 1850s or 1863, but those games have been separate for much longer than they've been together. Yeah. They're separate games. The broadcasters, did, the broadcasters wanted products yeah. to keep the adverts apart, essentially. Um, and one of the things that was very clear, certainly in the case of rugby league fans, was rugby league, rugby league fans are an extremely contentious lot. The one thing they're absolutely agreed on is they don't want rugby union. Yeah. And I think there's a real problem in merging the two games. You can, it comes down to the tackle law. If the ball, if the ball is dead, if the ball is dead once somebody is tackled, you're playing rugby league. Yes. If the ball is alive when somebody is tackled, and, and therefore must be released, you're playing rugby union. I don't. Re I've never been able. I've never been able to think of a middle way between the two. You're playing. You're playing one game or the other. So, do you feel that the the continuing separation between the two is a matter of fan culture, or is it something that is um, in the interests of? The administrators or the or the broadcasters. Yeah. I, think it's, I, think, I think it's all of those. I suppose what's been interesting is that the broadcasters haven't perhaps tried the odd because certainly I, what I seem to remember being suggested at one stage, what you might end up with was you know, a joint code rugby union and rugby league. You know, that, you know, so possibly you'd end up with three versions of rugby. Yeah, because the, one, the, yeah. the fact it's not. I think the fact it's not been tried is interesting. I think there's a point here yeah, that if you think about it, yeah, it's not in Sky's interests to lose one of the two games that gives them a gives them a lot of uh, a broadcast and very different audiences as well. That's right. So, yeah. yeah so. And I say certainly one of the things you will find that uh, you know, rug, you know, rugby rugby league fans are very definite about the fact they don't. But you know, they, uh, you know this isn't you know this they, they, you know this isn't made, rugby league fans genuinely do not find rugby union very interesting or attractive. Yeah. So what? What you would probably simply do is sacrifice, and and you'd sacrifice a fair lot. And in particular, you'd sacrifice a lot of your audience in Australia, which, in rugby terms, is a major economy. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, well, fin finally, uh, bringing it up right up to date uh, with the World Cup coming along very soon. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts about Wales's chances in this World Cup? I would be pleasantly surprised if they won it. And I think obviously, yeah, I think Thalassar is a loss, Anscom is a loss, so to lose two players, two players before, you lose players during the tournament, to lose two pretty nailed on first choice players before a tournament is a serious blunt. I still think Reese Webb is Wales' best scrum half, unless since they've chosen to do without him for uh, reasons of selection policy. At the same time, it is actually quite interesting before before a World Cup to think, well, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility for Wales to win. They uh, are one of the strongest teams. They are one of the strong teams. They are the current Six Nations champions. Uh, I wouldn't take too much, make too much of being number one in the world, apart because there are four or five teams there or thereabouts. But the fact there are four or five, four or five teams thereabouts, I think, suggests you know this is a World Cup that hasn't got an obvious favourite. Which I think, which I think is a very good thing. Yeah, with luck, should make for a very exciting tournament. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and what, just, just before we finish, uh, what are you working on at the moment? Well, I'm involved in the with a team of 
um, colleagues at Brighton University on the Routledge Handbook of Sports Journalism, and I'm also co-writing a book on the 1946 Rugby League Lions Tour. And of course, some of the interesting things about, you know, we think of Lions in rugby union terms, it's actually much more central to rugby league history than to rugby union history. Yeah. Um, and Australia. that 1940, it went to Australia, that 1946 yeah. tour. And it goes, and it goes, it goes, um, leaves less than a year after the end of the war in Europe. So it's, you know, it's remarkably early from that point of view. Um, so it's remarkable. And uh, Martin Whitcomb, who is the person I'm co whose idea it was, essentially whose book it is, which I am co-writing, his grandfather Frank was on the tour as a prop forward. And Martin, Martin wanted to co-write. Martin is an excellent researcher, but wanted a, wanted a writer to help with him and because it's a publisher I know I've been asked to do that and once that is done I am hoping to do a book on Dickie Owen, the uh, great Welsh drum half of the beginning of the 20th century, of course one of the key figures in 1905 which he's already talked about. Um, the first great scrum half, one of the first great working class players and finally in the early 1930s a suicide. So there's quite a lot to write about there. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thanks, Hugh. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've had some company yeah. <laughs> today, so it hasn't been the easiest podcast to do. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure that people enjoyed it out there in podcast land. Um, if you want to read more of Hugh's work, um, I'll put a link to his works on the podcast page, um, and I'll put a little bibliography on there so that you can follow up on the books that we talked about. And you can follow Hugh on Twitter. Um, people who follow Hugh on Twitter will know that he uh, covers a lot of sport around the country, uh, particularly uh, the Swans, Swansea, right. Swansea City, that's your passion, I think. But also, um, we're, in, we're nearly in Haringey. Um, I know that you cover the Scholars as well, which is a local, right, yes, yeah. local rugby league team. Um, so do follow Hugh on Twitter to uh, keep up with what he's writing about. Um, and if you listeners think you've done some research on sport or leisure history that would be suitable for the seminar series at the IHR, we're looking for speakers for the 2019-2020 academic year, so do get in touch via the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org, or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account, which is very easy to find on Twitter if you just search for British uh, Society of Sport History. And that's all for this episode, so until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Bye.